Welcome back to the Architecture Firm Marketing Podcast, a show where I speak to architects who have found success in their business, marketing, and communications, as well as consultants and experts who will share their unique tips and strategies to help you attract your ideal clients. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, marketing consultant for architects. And if you'd benefit from professional advice and guidance on your marketing, you can head to vanityprojects.com to check out my coaching services and book in a free 30-minute consultation to discuss your situation. Today's episode is sponsored by Bowbird, and I'd like to thank Bowbird for jumping on board and supporting the show. I've known Nick and Ben, the founders, for years and seen their platform grow from this small startup in Melbourne to now being all over the world with reach into China, the UK, Europe, and the US. If you've seen other architects and interior designers getting lots of media coverage all over the place and wondered, hey, how do they do that? There's a good chance they're using Bowbird, and that's because many of the best publications in the world source their content through Bowbird, like Wallpaper, Frame, Arc Daily, and many more. It's very easy to use as well. So if you've ever had a project professionally photographed, then you've got everything you need to get started. You just upload your project and start submitting it to your favorite magazines, newspapers, and websites. So if you'd like to find out more, I have a previous episode of the podcast with the co-founder, Ben Morgan, titled Figuring Out the Architectural Media. It's episode 12. Or if you just want to use Bowbird and try it out for yourself, then head over to bowerbird.io. Joining me on the show today is Adam Haddo. Adam is the director and owner at SJB, a 160-person practice of architects, interior designers, planners, and urban designers with offices in Melbourne and Sydney. In this episode, Adam and I chatted about how SJB's unique ownership structure presents both challenges and opportunities for the practice as it grows, the different ways that SJB go about winning new work, the pros and cons of each channel, and why Adam likes working with clients who have skin in the game. We also spoke about the importance of building relationships and Adam's approach to establishing and strengthening his professional relationships, and how he tailors his approach to clients in different age groups. And finally, why Adam believes that saying yes to requests, being generous with time and knowledge, and promoting peers that are doing good work are all fundamental traits of becoming an accomplished architect. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Adam Haddo from SJB. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure, Dave. Nice to meet you properly. Yes, you too. You too. Um, I guess, as always, start off with we should start off with maybe a little tiny bit of a, a background. I think um, you've got an interesting long record at SJB, so I'm very interested to kind of know a little bit more about that, and and then we'll talk about SJB as well and some of the other things that you're doing. But yeah, maybe just a bit of um, yeah, a bit of a background on on Adam. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in um, country Victoria, a little place called Ararat, so kind of three hours from Melbourne. Went to Melbourne Uni to study architecture and I started work at SJB as a student in my year off when we used when you used to have to do a full year of work experience. And 27 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> I never worked anywhere else. <laughs> that's so great. And I think that's going to be, be so relevant in the conversation because I'm not going to be able to say like, um, you know, as opposed to other places you've worked, what do you yeah. do differently at SJB? Because it's kind of your sort of you've got your way of doing things, and that's yeah. and that's what you've um, what you've done. But that's really interesting. So I've been there since the '90s, right? And um, that yeah. long period of time. And um, so I, I guess SJB. So it existed sort of prior, uh, obviously. And yeah. yeah, what's what's kind of the history of the practice as well? 
Uh, so S and J and B, the cinnamon and Justin Bielik, so Michael, Charles and um, Alan uh, established the practice in 1972 okay. and they started off actually doing cayenne houses actually, so lots of really beautiful homes and then their clients became developers and they started doing office buildings in and around Sydney. So there's kind of a, a number of office buildings along St Kilda Road that they did in the 80s which are now... Uh, coming back into vogue, so the kind of postmodernist kind of era of Melbourne, which is quite lovely. Um, yeah. And they did a couple of really fantastic buildings like Nissan House, which is down in South Melbourne, which uh, you know won a, a bevy of awards when it was first finished. Um, and then, so yeah, they set up the SJB and it became a kind of medium-sized practice in Melbourne. Uh, we're doing a plethora of apartment projects. So during the 90s when there was no need for office space, SJB started converting offices from offices to residential apartments. And that's pretty much when I started uh, in 1994. I think I started on, yeah, 19, yeah. end of 1993, started in 1994. And yeah, so I started work there and then we did, a, I worked there throughout university and then I finished university and started work full-time worked on a competition and won the competition and moved to or I came to Sydney to do to kind of hand it over actually and then the yeah. weather was good <laughs> and I thought <laughs> you know what let's stay in Sydney so yeah um, what, he stayed in Sydney to, correct what was meant to be three weeks has turned into 21 years <laughs> that's it that's great so so there was a was there an office in Melbourne as well like you might have mentioned that there but I might have missed it so yeah, there's the an office, office in office in Sydney was the original no the no. Melbourne office is the original office correct. and then Sydney correct. okay yeah correct so the Melbourne office uh, has been there since 73, 72, and it's obviously still operating. Uh, there's probably about uh, 60 people, I would say, in the Melbourne office, and that's across right. uh, interior design, architecture, uh, and urban design and planning. Yep. And then when we moved to when I moved to Sydney, there was a couple of colleagues who had just come up to start working on other projects. So um, SJB had been asked to do a few, an interiors project in Sydney and a hotel project in Sydney. So two, two other colleagues had moved up. And then when we won the competition for the residential apartment project, I moved up. So the three of us kind of started the practice, I suppose you'd yeah. say, in, in it all kind of Almost independently, we were, working, we were just working on projects and uh, yeah. we ended up becoming partners and setting up the practice. And now the Sydney practice is about, uh, there's probably close to 100 people in the Sydney practice. Yeah. And yeah. the Melbourne one, is it sort of a similar size? Yeah, studio? Melbourne's a little bit smaller than us at the moment. So yeah. they're probably about 60 to 70 people, but we're pretty yeah. much, we're, we're like sisters, you know, we're growing up yeah. together. <laughs> yeah, what's what's sort of the, the structure or the relationship between those two studios? Is it kind of, do they operate quite independently or, or do they do different kinds of work? What's the, what's uh, the setup? We're set up, we're very independent. So we're literally like sisters. We share right, a name. Okay. Um, but we have independent ownership, independent structure, uh, and we kind of come oh. together to work on projects when we want to. Uh, we obviously our Sydney practice doesn't do work in Melbourne, and our Melbourne practice doesn't work do work in Sydney. Uh, but we kind of share resources and um, intent, those kind of things. But we we run quite separately. So none of the Sydney owners own Melbourne, and none of the Melbourne owners own Sydney. So we're very much wow. our own independent businesses. 
Awesome. So, so I think you're the director of probably the biggest practice I've ever had on the podcast. Oh, really? Potentially <laughs> ever even spoken to. So, <laughs> so, so a lot of guests, when you're the first of something, you just have to answer questions about big practices <laughs> now. So it's probably not going to be super enjoyable from that standpoint, but the sister office structure, is that common in the, no, it's very own, unusual. Right? So even to the point where in the Melbourne practice, the interiors division, the planning division, the architecture division are actually all independent independently owned as well. So it's a collection of owners rather than a single ownership structure, which has its strengths and weaknesses. So the strength is that you have people running and owning the business and they can live and die by the sword. So you allow people to have, uh, I suppose, carriage of their own destiny. Um, The sweetness is that it's like herding cats sometimes. So you have to, (laughs) there's kind of pros and cons. So, you know, I have friends who work in other big practices where it's a single ownership across multiple offices, across multiple countries. And that has its own challenges as well, which is about how do you kind of run the United Nations? How do you keep everybody heading in the same direction, right? Um, So they have similar issues about, um, direction and structure and decision making. It's just different ways of dealing with it, I suppose. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I, again, I'm kind of maybe getting out of my skis a little bit in terms mm. of knowledge in this area, but um, it seems, is that sort of similar to how big four accounting practices operate and stuff with a sort of a structure where partners are quite, they have their, their sort of independent owners in their local kind of region? Is it is, is there any sort of similarity there or what, what can you kind of compare that to, I, I guess? It's or, really hard, it's, actually, to be honest. We've been thinking for years about whether our structure is right and whether we've whether we're set up the yeah. right way for success and future and bringing yeah. new partners in. Um, uh, and we con- I'm constantly having discussions with other uh, partners of other practices about what's you know how they're set up I, i'm not 100 percent sure how the law practices and accounting practices are, are operating but yeah. it's similar i think it's similar it's just a little bit yeah. different they have we have literally a very 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 little cross pollination required mm. so they have uh, a lot more of a stringent cross pollination requirement um, yeah. our cross pollination that happens between our businesses is uh, generally through desire rather than through requirement. And that yeah. that kind of changes the, the you know, yeah, flips the, the, the flips it a little bit because you're doing, you're kind of involving yourself with somebody else because you want to, not because you have to. And it kind of makes it a more joyful experience, I suppose. Yeah. Now I'll kind of take it away from business territory into more sort of marketing communications mm. territory because I think why mm. I'm interested in the structural side of it is mm. How do you then, you know, we're always trying to figure out how do we position our practice and how do we kind of make sure what we're doing has clarity and makes sense and this idea yeah. of a direction and so many elements of your marketing, I could see being kind of like that herding cats element being mm-hmm. kind of um, difficult to get that consensus and yeah. um, sort of maybe arrive at some of that sometimes. So I guess how, how does, is there, do you have somebody who is kind of a delegated authority on the marketing and the comms and the business development, or is it sort of this shared responsibility amongst all kind of the owners and directors and the architecture owner, the interior owner, how does decisions get made about the overall kind of like um, market facing side of SJB? Um, so we, we have a we have a steering committee, I suppose you'd call them, um, yeah. and they who owns our brand. So our brand is owned collectively by all of us, but our offices are owned independently. And so yeah. we we have one person from each business who sits on that brand um, ownership structure, and through that brand ownership structure, we 
we have, I mean, we have very common goals. We have very common ambitions. We get together occasionally to talk about if we want to grow or shrink or move or do something, that, you know, the strategic things. But the day-to-day we have a com- communications manager who shares their time between the Sydney and Melbourne practice. Yeah. And he um, is really good at just making sure everybody is uh, understanding what's going on. He kind of, James sets the agenda in terms of, you know, we, we kind of communicate with James about what projects we've got coming up and what we want to be focusing on. But he's very good at kind of weeding the things out of the grass, you know, getting the weeds out of the grass and saying, well, you know, that's not really relevant or look, we'll hold that over for another couple of months because it's not quite finished or, um, and, you know, I think, we're we're, pretty, we're a fairly broad church, so we kind of believe that design is for the betterment of people. And so when you think about that in that broader sense, it's pretty easy to then come together about what we're communicating, what we're talking about. And equally, it's quite easy to say this is an, this is an irrelevant discussion because it's not contributing to that notion of um, creating better places for people. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's okay, pretty easy. I mean, you, you occasionally have you know, conflict, conflict can be good though. You know, yeah, conflict yeah. is the way you work out what you don't want to do otherwise <laughs> sometimes. Um, but yeah, James is really good at just uh, pulling us all together. We also have a, a PR person who's out of house who yeah. uh, just gives us some strategic direction about what's working and what's not working, I suppose. Right. Okay. And with a with the out of house PR, is that something uh, in terms of they're they're working with you mm-hmm. on a constant basis? But then is it a quarterly kind of review and discussion, or how, what sort of frequency? I mean, does the um, sort of the marketing and comms stuff kind of come to the fore? I mean, obviously, as a steering committee, you're talking mm. about so many different issues. Mm. And that side of business development. I mean, what sort of share does that take up of the conversation? Yes. How I mean, often? I think- we have we actually have a couple of PR consultants. So our Melbourne practice yeah. has a different PR consultant to our Sydney practice, and I think that's oh, just, interesting. Okay, yeah, I think that's just identifying that uh, the two cities have very different communication yeah. um, pathways uh, yeah. in, in terms of media and outlets. And, um, but we have a fairly consistent catch up with Cat in our Sydney office, and we maybe catch up with Cat once a month and just talk about what's coming up and what's happening. And if there's an yeah. issue at hand that we need to talk about um, straight away, we just jump on the phone and chat to her. So it's it's pretty fluid, I suppose you'd say. It's far less structured than most people would think it is. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah, think yeah absolutely. That's possibly it's what its strength in a way that we're able to be quite um, agile. Uh, that's one of the things I think we, I mean, we don't, when you said, you know, I'm the person who with the largest practice you've ever talked to, that blows me away. I don't feel like we're in a big practice. I feel like we're in a very yeah, small that was studio, be one of to my, be quite honest. One of, one of my questions in terms of your perception of that, well, I think a lot of the yeah, a lot of the practices or directors that I'm talking to on the podcast are sort of, a lot are in sort of five to 15 people yes. kind of range and they're sort of, they're small or small or becoming, they consider themselves becoming sort of medium-ish, even though yeah. by bigger practice standards, they're tiny. Yes. Um, and then there are some larger practices in the sort of 40, 50, 60 range. But when we're getting to 160 kind of combined across two cities, multi-office, yes. that starts to get into this higher, big scale for me from, yeah. from, from, where, from my standpoint. But it's really interesting from your side. Do you... Your kind of competitive group would include practices that have like how many hundred people? Wow, absolutely, <laughs> like, um, we're the minnow. And, yeah, yeah, you're the minnow, and yeah. I guess being that minnow in that in that huge enormous ocean of large projects, um, it comes back to I guess that question about positioning. It's do you? 
I think that making the decisions about where do we compete or what do we mm-hmm. go for? I know there's this principle of making people's lives better, but in terms of when the conversation becomes, hey, the next big ticket opportunity is airports or the next mm. thing is, you mm. know, hotels or boutique mm. accommodation, whatever, whatever mm. kind of conversations come up, finding out those niches to really go for in that big market of pra- of bit larger practices must be, is that part of the way that you look at it or is it a completely different sort of way I've, of thinking about how you sit amongst all the other practices up there? Yeah, I think, um, I think it'd be fair to say we're far more client focused than project focused. So mm. we won't, we kind of don't wake up in the morning and think, oh, I want to do an airport. But yes. if one of our clients who we've been working with for 10 years says, hey, um, we're going to do an airport. Would you come and do something with us? We'd probably be like, yeah. sure, why not? Let's have a look at it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, I think we're a little bit more uh, plastic than, than kind of, we're not yeah. very rigid, I suppose you'd say. And we're also very focused on what the individuals in our practice want to do. So, you know, we're not going to ever say, oh, go out and start doing it um airports if no yeah. one is really interested in doing airports you know because yeah. in the end <laughs> if we're not satisfying our own personal ambitions and desires about the type of work we want to work on uh, it ultimately will just fail so it's super important that the people who are working in the practice in the studio are doing things they believe in and they want to be doing and r- pretty much if you get to a position where people aren't that's where things go wrong. That's where things go mm. awry. So, you know, we're really focused on making sure that, I mean, at a personal level, I want to get up in the morning and be excited about what I'm doing. And yeah. um, so that's that's about, you know, at a personal level, finding the kind of project I want to work on and the kind of clients I want to work with. Yeah, so mentioning more of a client-based focus rather than project or category-based because mm. I've seen it at the small scale where practices maybe where they'll, there'll be two or three directors and they might end up splitting up because they wanted to do different kinds of projects. They're thinking yeah. about it very category-based. And then I've seen, I have seen larger practices where they're, our Perth office does shopping centers and our yeah. Queensland office does, and it's very super concrete. It's not plastic at all, right? Yeah. Um, but you, you mentioned that it's more of a client-based focus and finding, I guess what I'm trying to get to is, you know, in terms of how you take a proactive approach, I understand that things can just sort of naturally yeah. organically develop, but the points in time where the practice is proactive about trying to pursue certain things or go in a certain direction, is it more of a client-based focus where you're identifying companies or individuals mm-hmm. or organizations and going, they're amazing, they share our values? Is that sort of... Yeah. It depends. So a few years ago, we decided we wanted to do hotels. We were, we've got a lot of right, experience okay. in doing apartment buildings and mixed-use projects, and we'd really like to start doing some hotels. And so in that case, it was um, our first break in doing a big hotel, architecturally and interiors-wise, uh, together, doing both of them, because we'd done hotels before from just an interiors perspective, uh, was uh, kind of finding clients or colleagues who had moved into that sector. So people we'd worked with before who had moved into that sector and were doing things that we Um, thought were really interesting. So I was like, okay, well, I met this guy, you know, this person years ago and we're going to give them a call, just call them up and say, Hey, I see you're doing in hotels and we want to do a hotel and give me some advice. Now that took probably five years from the first initial point of saying, this is what we want to be doing to then be doing hotels became, Mm. you know, a process. Um, Whereas if I think about schools, we're doing some work for um, uh, primary schools and secondary schools, so for state schools, uh, that was a much, had to be much more strategic approach because it's all about government 
It's all about ticking boxes yeah. about do you have the right quality assurance? Have you done this type of work before? So that's picking off projects, small, very small projects to be able to say, yes, we have done an education project before, even if it was just a toenail of a project to <laughs> yeah. be able to tick a box on a tender. Uh, and then again, slowly over five or six years, you're able to kind of build up some capacity. Uh, so they're, they're quite different, I suppose you'd say. Uh, in terms yeah. of the way in which we approach them, but uh, each, you know, each has their own value in the way in which you can do it. I think it also comes down to what type of clients you're working with. So, I personally prefer to work with clients who are spending their own money. I like, I like the direct relationship between a client who is a either doing their own house or doing a development or building something, and it's their money they're spending. I enjoy that relationship because there's a there's a kind of immediacy to it. Um, I, I tend to find when I'm working on government projects, I find that quite challenging because the people on the other side of the desk, your clients in inverted commas, they often change. So they're very rarely in the project for the entire time that the project yeah. exists that we're there for. They're, they're less invested in, in some cases because they're probably not going to be around at the end. Um, they may be just working on certain phases of the project rather than the overall project. Uh, and it's ultimately it's not their money, so they're making decisions, you know, for the public good, and they're spending money, public money, to do that. Uh, but there's also value in that because you tend to get people who are highly specialised. So they have a high amount of knowledge about what it is that they're building and what is they're doing. Uh, they they can be much more strategic because they are spending money. Uh, it's because it's not their money. They can see the longer term vision, saying, "Well, yes, I am going to spend an extra." 10% on the project to achieve a sustainability outcome. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's kind of strengths and weaknesses, but, I, but at a personal level, I like working with, I, lo I like the immediacy of making decisions quite quickly and not working through a bureaucracy. It's interesting. So if you were to sort of break down between those two sides, which is really, there's a sort of the framework based, we're going into the structure and ticking boxes sort of side mm -hmm. of things, which is probably mm -hmm. the government side. And then on the private side, there's the individual spending their own money or their company's money or whatever. Mm. Um, what, what would that mix be as like a pie chart <laughs> first day? Is it 50-50 like or? No, yeah. it'd probably be in, because it, because the other people, there's the government side of ticking the box, but there's also the yep. corporations, um, you know, large, very large developers like the Dexas's and the AMPs and the Lend Leases and those kind of people. They're, they're yep. similar because the people are kind of employees rather than employers. Yeah, gotcha. Um, I think you'd probably say, you know, if, if we broke it up, if we were thinking about government work to non-government work, we're probably doing 20% government work and 80% non-government work. This is okay. in the design side of the practice because we have our, our planning side, which are more yep. statutory planners. Um, yeah, so probably about 20, 80, but then within the 80%, it's probably a, a, a fairly even mix between the kind of uh, single ownership or family ownership businesses where you have that directness and then large uh, large corporations where um, they're part of a you know much bigger infrastructure a much bigger ecology of the way in which they deliver yeah. projects in in the private side with the sort of more discretionary clients do they I, I imagine that they would be able to detect and appreciate your unique strengths as a practice maybe to a greater degree than perhaps government or um, a bureaucratic kind of corporation could in terms of they have this extremely comprehensive way of like evaluating a practice for a project or, or at mm. least it sounds that way versus, mm. you know, on the private side, maybe it's I just sort of fall in love with this aspect of what this practice does and I mm. want them on my project. Is it? Yeah. Is there kind of that relationship or is that maybe um, a bit oversimplified? 
Uh, no, look, I think there's, there can be that relationship. I think ultimately the way people um, choose you to work on a project or not comes down to a number of different factors. And, you know, some clients will choose you based solely on your brand and your capacity to mm. uh, generate interest in a market. Say for a residential apartment building, they want to be able to say we're doing X department building and it's designed. Yeah, you're up on the you know? signage. Your Correct. logo is bigger than the Correct. name of the project. Like, yeah. Correct, yeah. So sometimes that happens and sometimes, you know, they might really want you on the project for that reason, but they might, they might, you might annoy the bejesus out of them because, you know, they, you're, you're not doing what they want you to do and it's, well, that's why you got me kind of thing. Um, <laughs> Whereas other times, uh, you know, people are wanting just to know that you've got the experience, that you've done this before, and um, that can be both positive and negative as well where, um, I mean, I'm always surprised at how people choose which architectural practice to use. Mm. I sit on a lot of design review panels um, where I'm the independent, I'm an independent third party, I'm just observing and I, someone comes in and they, there's, you know, client Y and architect Z and... I always kind of sit there sometimes and think, how did you choose each other? How did you yeah. two end up in the same room? It's a really odd, that's a really odd thing, you know, um, particularly when it's a private client because they have they have the sole capacity to be able to make that decision. You can kind of understand it when it's a bureaucratic appointment um, and sometimes you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe you two are together uh, because, you know, someone's ticked a box and said, okay, they're perfect for the job. I mean, they, when they get in the room, you're like, oh, my gosh, you are not perfect. For, you know, you two are not perfect for each other. Why are you doing this together? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I always find that quite intriguing actually. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I sort of wonder about uh, maybe smaller practices when they're kind of thinking of, you know, making that move from residential or a little bit of sort of small commercial stuff and they're, and, and they're starting to go into that sort of public realm or the larger mm -hmm. projects, um, often the approach is to go, okay, it's time to get really serious about the paperwork and mm -hmm. get in a position where we can really start ticking all those boxes. And I think yep. sometimes they go that government, maybe that route, route um, mm -hmm. And they start working with consultants to become compliant with X, Y, and Z yeah. and all that sort of thing. Um, but there's that other camp that you spoke about, which is a relationship with person moving through industry that slowly develops over five years. There's that sort of thing. I just, yep. I wonder if that transition going, going down that sort of box ticking route. Yeah, I think they're both right. And I think you have to actually do both of them, right? Yeah. So there's no, you know, uh, we're certified uh, on a whole lot of different categories on a yeah. whole lot of different, you know, state government requirements under schools, infrastructure and health and department of planning and transport and, you know, a whole lot of things. Um, and at the same time, you've still got to keep up your relationship building through it's a very casual thing where you kind of run into people, you meet people, you see them, that someone, you know, you just occasionally ring clients you haven't spoken to for a while for no other reason but just to see how they're going. Um, I think you can underestimate the value of that. You can underestimate the value of just seeing somebody who's doing something really interesting or you admire and just picking up the phone and saying, can I have a coffee with you? Generally, people will definitely say yes if you take an interest in what they're doing. And yeah. um, it can be a really easy way to kind of get an inline into a type of work that you want to do. It's, I mean, I always, I, I'm always intrigued because the best projects on paper can be the worst projects in reality and vice mm -hmm. versa. Sometimes, 
you think, oh my God, this is going to be the most painful project. Why are we even looking at this? And they become the best projects to work on with the best design outcomes, with the best relationships. And other times you get presented projects, you think, oh my God, this is my dream project. And it becomes an absolute nightmare that you just absolutely don't want to work on. You know, it's very hard to make a it's very hard to project forward and see what the outcome of the project is going to be at the start. And I think in a lot of ways you just have to roll with the punches and see see what happens, you know, and if hopefully you can help steer it in the direction you want to steer it in. But it's uh, it's never clear. It's never There's never a project where you think, oh, my God, this is an amazing project. This is going to be the best project ever. And that's how it ends up. They're usually much more tumultuous than that. That's an interesting point because quite often I'm asking um, directors of sort of all sizes about you know, how they select for the right kind of work because it's obviously, it's a sort of a key to success that you're, you know, picking the right projects to work on, I suppose. Mm. Um, mm. But it, it's an interesting point when you really can't project forward and work out what kind of project it's going to be. So mm. is your philosophy just, what? how do you work it out? <laughs> how do you know yeah, now? A, if, you're, if, you, if you're second guessing with all your experience, yeah. you're going, I just don't know my radar for good and bad is completely off. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I have a yes type. I'm a yes personality person, right? So I'm a yeah. uh, say yes and seek forgiveness later kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Uh, always, in my mind, always serves me well. Just let's do it. Let's try it out. Uh, but you've got to be careful about making sure that when it is when it's heading down the wrong track, you call it out and you try to either steer it back in the right direction or you remove yourself from that position. Probably in my professional life I've only ever had to remove myself from a project once or twice where it's just gone it's got to a point where this is not productive you know for us or for the client uh, whereas you know every other project we've ever done you're able to find the space and the project you know that you that's you know delivers some level of excellence um, but it's a hard one it's a hard one to work out what it which projects you spend your time and energy on and which ones you don't I mean you kind of do a bit of a dance with the client at the start to see how serious they are about a project. You know, what what are they, what, what are they, what do they really want, and do they really have the right ambition? And is there enough infrastructure behind them financially or professionally to be able to deliver the type of outcome that you and they are looking for? Um, you know, a, fr a friend um, once said to me that, you know you've got to have an environment that will uh, enable excellence to occur. It's not a single thing. It's a whole lot of stuff that comes together and will, and you know, will help achieve excellence, design excellence. And that's about, that's about the client. That's about financial position. That's about the site. That's about the neighbors. That's about, well, you know, what type of the year, what time of the year started the project. It's about who are your advocates on the project, uh, what bill do they appoint, what finance do they have. So there's so many bits that come together that it's never, you never get that whole view at the start. It kind of builds yeah. up over time. And I suppose as you get more experienced, you start to be able to recognise the cues where it's either the right thing or the, or the wrong thing or heading in the right direction or maybe veering the wrong direction. And you're able to sometimes help steer it back in the right direction. If you like what you're hearing so far, please share this episode with colleagues you think would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave me a five-star review on the Apple Podcast app? Every review makes it easier for people to find the show and hear what my amazing guests have to say. Just head to ratethispodcast.com slash Dave and pick your favorite podcast app. 
I also love hearing your questions and I'm planning more listener Q&A episodes. So please send your questions in to questions at vanityprojects.com and I'll answer them on an upcoming episode. That's so interesting. So I think that's your first time... <laughs> Someone's been uh, accepting of the steering role. Yeah. This idea. Yeah, right. I think there's sometimes there's some perception that it's I have to be very much about rejecting out the projects at the very early stage, or, or kind of going, mm. no, they're not, they're not, they're not right. Mm. We're only swinging at the, the fat pitches, you know, as they say, mm. kind of we're not, we're not. We're, as soon as we pick up anything less than, we're like, mm. no, no, that's not right. But but it's really interesting that you're kind of like, no, we can steer it. And is that is that something that um, I guess you're not having to do it all the time, but it may be just a bit of a window into kind of what that looks like. I mean, you pick up those cues and then is it is it a communication with clients type of thing? Is it an internal thing? I mean, yeah, yeah, I think it's all um, of the above. often it's it's all of the above, but it's it's about uh, clear communication. It's about not being scared to have a direct conversation sometimes. It's about. Uh, trusting your gut instinct, <laughs> you yeah. know, often your instinct can be quite good with things. Uh, look, there's definitely projects when a client rings and says, oh, you know, we'd like to interview you to do this job. And you're like, that's just not us. There's no point us having a conversation about that, right? But if a client who I've been working with for 10 years rings up and says, look, I've got this really strange project and I'm not sure whether you'd be interested or not, my answer will always be, of course, we'll be interested. Like, yeah. I like you. We have, yeah. We're quite happy to go and have a beer together. So... If you're involved, of course we want to be involved. This will be a fun project. Yeah. Uh, so I think that often people can place too much emphasis on the on the what and not the who. I think yes, the exactly. who is mm. way more important than the what. I think the what, the what in the end uh, is a confluence of a whole lot of things. But if the who is wrong, it's, that's very hard to change. You know, the, mm. the who. If you really hate the client, <laughs> if, you, if you just don't <laughs> yeah. get on, I suppose. If you're not yeah. if you're not aligned. Um, culturally aligned, that's going to be very difficult to change. But uh, if you're culturally aligned, usually you can get through most things. I'm interested in going back a little bit to the relationship side of things and the, you know, staying in touch with people and, um, you know, reaching out to people and just asking them for a coffee and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, um, that's that sort of stuff, is that has that always kind of come naturally to you as a person in terms of being, yeah. yeah. Yeah, look, personally, yeah, absolutely. I, it's just something I do naturally. I'm surprised when people are like, oh, my God, you're so good at networking. I'm like, I don't do any networking. Like, I don't go I don't go to drinks. I don't go to dinners. I don't do any of that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, you're not at the not, golf course too often. Never. Like, it's not my <laughs> thing, you know. But um, but 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 I, I, I have a knack for being able to, commun- to have a conversation with people and talk yeah. to them and know when to pick up the phone and have a conversation, I think. Um, so I find that it's uh, it's quite confronting to me that some people don't know how to do that or find that unique because, um, yeah, because it comes naturally. There's other things that definitely don't come naturally to me, <laughs> um, yeah. which I'm sure they're much better at as well. But, yeah, it's not. It's I find it also changes over generations. My generation is one where you, have com- you pick up the phone and have a conversation. Yeah. Um, younger generations tend to be about emailing people and one of my big things is acknowledging who it is who's your audience yeah so if 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 i'm trying to contact somebody older than me um 
don't send them an email, pick up the phone because they're not going to they're not going to respond to an email. My parents don't even read emails, right? Uh, if I'm responding to somebody younger than me, I can text them and that's okay. So it's kind of changing the way in which you communicate based on the person that you're communicating to. Um, again, which I don't think is rocket science, but I don't think a lot of people, sometimes people just forget about that. And so I'll often walk around the office and say to somebody, I have a knack for knowing when a client's about to call, right? So a client will be, I can just feel it. I'm like, they're going to call us and they're going to say, where are we up to on A, B or C? And I'll walk over to the project architect and say, you need to call blah, blah and ask them blah, blah. And they'll be like, yeah, yeah, no problems. And I go back and, you know, then the client calls and the client calls me, right? And I'm like, okay, after the conversation, that's fine, no problems. And I go over to the project doctor and said, did you call the client? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I sent them an email. I'm like, no, 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 that's not <laughs> what I said. I said, call them, pick up the phone and have a conversation. Because the, generally our clients are older than us because to, to be yeah. employing us, they have to be they have to have money and they yeah. have to have some position of power with it wherever they are. Um, and they, they, they're generally telephone talkers, yeah? So yeah. You, you've, if... As a younger person, you've got to engage in the way in which they communicate, and that's about picking up the phone, and having a conversation. Uh, and the reason for that is that as a as a director of the practice, I want you to have the relationship with the client, so they ring you all the time because that means I can get on and do the stuff that I that I need to do, and you can do the stuff you need to do as a as an as a architect, young architect. Uh, what I don't want to do is be the middle person between the client and the project architect, and then the client rings me, and then I have to go and talk to the project architect, and yeah. vice versa. Yeah, you know, it's important that people have a direct communication, and that's about finding what that communication avenue is for your client or your consultant or the council or whoever it is. It's um. It's tough working with an older client base, I suppose, um, in, in terms of establishing those relationships because a lot, so many of them are kind of, you know, they're phone talker, but they're also kind of off the grid in terms of, yeah. you know, they're the blank display picture on LinkedIn. They're, they, don't, yeah. they, don't have, they don't have an Instagram account. You know, they're, they're sort of, um, and so like you having they that love sort a of, coffee. They love a coffee, don't they? They love a coffee. You just call okay. them up and say, can I buy you a coffee? I want some advice. And it's pretty much anyone in an Australian business. If you say to somebody, can, can you give me some advice? Yeah. They'll fall over themselves to have a coffee with you because people <laughs> like talking about themselves, yeah? <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. You know. Fantastic. Maybe a podcast interview is the younger generation's coffee. Yeah, it's all uh, like, like, like decades ago, this would have been a coffee, but, um, correct, but no, it's really, correct. it's interesting. So, so that's kind of the strategy and it's just basically, I can imagine the sort of approach, which is, you know, we're not, we're not talking about this being too much of tactical thing. You're, you're mm-hmm. legitimately interested in the, these people. They're interesting people. They're experienced yeah. people. So for me, when I'm thinking about who I want to come on the podcast, it's very curiosity driven. I'm like, I'm really curious yeah. about this person. And you're not thinking through, oh, they would be great because of X thing that they could do or bring to the table. It's Correct. just, you're just going, Correct. they're doing something cool and want to really have I'll a chat to them. I want to be a part them. of it. Yeah, yeah exactly. I want to be a part of what they're doing. What they're doing is interesting. What they're doing is innovative. Or uh, on, the other, on the other flip side is I've got a really interesting idea for somebody and I want to talk to somebody about how maybe we could um, liberate that idea and make it reality. Yeah. So that's yeah. kind of the other flip side of the coin. But I think, <clears throat> you know, if you have a general, you've got to have a genuine interest in people or they read through you. So you've got to, if you've got that genuine interest, you'll end up enjoying them. They'll end up enjoying your company and you'll end up doing projects together for probably years and years and years. 
Yeah. In terms of sort of probably didn't, you know, really even come up with a good question there in terms of them being sort of a little bit less visible than maybe that younger mm. uh, generation. Um, are you sort of finding, when you're finding out about um, potential clients or prospective clients that are doing kind of interesting things, is that, you know, are you getting that through the financial media, th- through the AFR? What's, mm. what's, um, what are some channels or it's just sort of word of mouth factor. You just find, hey, they, they did something cool and I found out about it. And so yeah. let's, you know, let's, let's, let's meet up with them. Let's talk to them. Yeah, it's a bit of everything. You know, like you read, you read a lot in the papers or you watch a bit on Twitter or you see what's yeah. going on Instagram. Um, you have friends who are, I mean, as you get older, the nice thing is that your friends actually end up becoming people of influence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so as they get older and, you know, they might be in completely different industries, but they end yeah. up uh, hearing about other people or doing other things and you, they kind of tell you about something interesting going on, they introduce you to people. So it's kind of a shotgun approach. Just try everything, you know, see, see, find out who's intriguing you and ultimately sometimes you'll, you know, there'll be a project somewhere in there, you know. Um, I, find that, I find that really interesting about the way in which projects come to you and what kind of project and how you make the connection and, yeah, and hopefully, I mean, the other thing is to make yourself seen because what you really want to do also is for other people to think that you're doing interesting stuff and they contact you and that's when clients generate themselves. So, um, you know, I have a policy of one of my good friends who's a, quite, who's a bit older than me uh, kind of said to me once, I got asked to do something years ago and I was like, should I do this? And he's you should do everything that anybody asks you to do. And I was like, really? And he's like, well, if someone's taken the time to invite you to do something like this, for example, yes, you should do it because it's about they've, they have an interest in what you're doing and it's a potential for you to have a discussion and clarify more about what it is that you want to be doing or doing or not yep. doing. And I kind of live by that now. So if anyone asks me to do anything, that's always a yes. Um, I'm trying to move that. I'm trying to move the needle a little bit. And, you know, if someone rings me and says, oh, can you come and give a talk or come and sit on a panel or something, I, I try to move it to some of the younger people in the office and kind of be their advocate for them yeah. stepping up to take some of those positions um, because I think it's super important that we get a much greater level of diversity in the discussions going on in the built environment. It's really interesting. Um, I've found that, and um, we'll talk about your um, your YouTube talk series in a, in a minute, which will mm. definitely because you've kind of been in my shoes. But um, some of the, I think, the most successful guests that I've had on the podcast have all, almost without exception, been people that get back to me in thirty minutes, just with a yes. Yep, yeah, I'm in, and yeah. they're the busiest yeah. people, the biggest mm. practices, the most on their plate. But it's the really tiny practice that really doesn't have that much going on. But they're like, oh, how's March, April next year? They're very, they're very know about it. But I find that this characteristic of the really just crushing it architects is just this, they, they, they almost shockingly say yes to stuff. And mm, it's just, mm. it blows me away. Mm. Um, but, it, but it seems to be the, absolutely the right approach. And I think because, you know, you're... Uh, you and other directors at STB as well, but you know we you put I put you into Google and stuff comes up. I can see mm. all the things you've said y- yes to. You've you've, and I guess it's almost interesting, maybe a segue into this idea of the practice brand versus the personal brand, which mm-hmm. I think you almost have a little, and and a lot of architects do also have a little tiny bit of independence from the practice in terms of the mm. practice is doing all this communication. But then you yeah. as an individual architect, you're also you know, um, saying yes to interviews, 
profiles. Um, you know, you've got your own sort of Instagram account. How do you sort of, um, you and, and the other leaders at the practice sort of separate that individual entity or what is the role of that like individual entity, I suppose, versus the firm? How do those two things kind yeah. of connect to each other? Um, it's a good question, actually. <laughs> it's... Uh, it's interesting for me because I've never been an architect anywhere else. I've never worked. Yeah. I've never worked anywhere else, right? Yeah. So, for me, I feel quite. Um, I feel like I am SJB. It, from my point of yeah. view, I am in Sydney. I am SJB. SJB is me. There's no kind of like. There's very yeah. little separation in our lives, you know, kind of thing. Um, but at the same time. I think the value, and I think it's different from a small practice to a big practice as well, and a practice mm. which is multi generational versus a practice which is a single generation. Because with a practice which is multi generational like SJB, with the, the the value that I find in that is that it's not my name on the door. So I do have the capacity to have any kind of another life, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, and and I choose to do some things under my own under myself and my own yeah. steam, which uh, happens, and then I choose to do other things under the SJB. But ultimately, they end up supporting yeah. each other, right? There's no yeah. kind of, you know, hard line between it. Sometimes it's just laziness. I post it on my own personal Instagram account rather than posting on the SJB one. I think, oh, shit, probably should have done that on the <laughs> SJB one. Um, but but I think it's, uh, yeah, it's intri- it's, an, it's an interesting observation about how you, how you do that. I've never been particularly strategic I would say about brand or awareness or anything like that I just tend to do something because I'm interested in it so the the talks for example were just I was bored we were in lockdown I am really bored I haven't been to an architecture talk in a very long time (laughs) want to do this (laughs) yes um before we talk about the talks I know I'm sort of building it up but um Mm. but it but it is interesting that you know there's this theory or thought that um people prefer to follow and pay attention to people rather than brands, right? And mm-hmm. that by you being visible, like there are there are practices that have completely invisible directors um, mm. that nobody's ever heard of. They don't have mm. any presence. They don't do any, any media. Yeah. They don't participate. I'm not just talking about marketing stuff, but I'm thinking about yes. like going out, engaging, participating, contributing, being involved in the profession. Yeah. And I just think, how do they get anywhere? Isn't that mm. just the isn't that the biggest missed opportunity for their practice? Because every ounce of effort that you put into uh, personal kind of individual endeavor on behalf of the practice must pay off kind of ten to one compared to an amazing press release or a really good mm. media pack on the on the mm. company side. Not to mm. belittle that side of the mm. marketing, but I just think, how if you're trying to market your practice just through we have just been shortlisted for blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I just don't see how those two things in terms of getting people's yeah. attention can even be on the same. Yeah, I think, I, I think it's also a very, it's a, a, quite an older school of thought about how how practice is seen. I think maybe 20, 30 years ago, that was how practice was seen by the practice and not by the individuals. But I think, yeah. the, you know, through the rise of social media, people don't want to see a brand. They want to see what sits behind it. They want to understand yeah. the thinking and the personalities. And um, I think it's, you know, on a personal level, I think it's a, it's quite fun. You know, I enjoy it. I enjoy kind of revealing myself a little bit in terms of what I what yeah. drives me and what keeps me interested. But I agree. I mean, I think for some people, though, can be quite confronting. They don't want to share themselves. Um, 
you know, my husband is a person who doesn't share himself with on social media yeah. or in his very business. Private, yeah. his, mm-hmm. You know, the business was the his business was the business, and it was very it was much more private. So you know, I think it's kind of horses for courses. But I, you know, a person, you know, personally, I yeah. love I love doing it. It's quite fun. Yeah, yeah. It's um, I guess you know, talking about twenty thirty years ago, I guess there always was this idea of the 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 principal, the the architect who was out there and being kind of yeah. visible, um, but. What what we sort of see now is that it's starting to filter its way down the, the sort of the org chart in terms of yep. individuals are having more prominent roles more generally. And you spoke yes. earlier about you know sending those those junior earlier staff to be involved in the panels and 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 things like that. Um, yep. And we're also seeing some practices that are you know like producing podcasts in house and doing little research projects and stuff that don't even you know involve the directors which is sort of mm. a unique and kind of a newer thing as well mm. um do, do you sort of do, would you kind of agree with that observation in terms of that's yeah. sort of how things are going um or, yeah, or it's an aspect that's I, I, being done now yeah absolutely i mean i think offices used to be a very rigid structure uh and what's happening is that if, if you take the analogy of what's happened in the last two years during the pandemic, the physical space of the office, which used to contain everything, has become a lot more fluid and it's yeah. a lot more, um, there's a lot more capacity for people. Really, they, people do their work anywhere and they come into the office for the cultural aspect of the office, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think what's happening is the brand of an office now is becoming a little bit similar where it kind of might hold it. It might be the cultural bit of the office, but lots of things happen around it and inject into it occasionally. And the value in that, I think, is that you can, the idea of, you know, there's an architect at the top and everyone sits yeah. in underneath Executes that. Executes their a, vision. Kind of <laughs> Correct. It's, yeah. it's just it's such a fallacy. But um, it's still quite hard to convince people on a, from a media point of view that yes. that's the case, that's not the case. Like people are like, oh, no, we want to talk to you. And I'm like, no, you don't want to talk to me. <laughs> you want to talk to someone else because they yeah. were more involved in the project. You know? Exactly. So, it's it's emerging, I think, that there is a, a much more flexible environment for people to contribute to the practice uh, broadly, and the, and the capacity, I think, to have a voice is better because it's more it's more immediate and you know, social media means that you can you can have a voice quite quickly as opposed to you know there's only two media options op- opportunities for the year and of course that would end up being the practice director who's doing yeah. it because they're so rare you know the, the opportunities are far more um frequent interesting on the media side let's talk about your talks really quickly because i'm interested there's been a couple of things so okay maybe like brief overview you touched on it a second ago that during lockdown um you 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 bored you hadn't been to an architect's talk in ages um, maybe, maybe just give a little bit of a background of it on the, what to all these amazing hour long, some of the best talks yeah. out there, videos that are on your YouTube channel, this very, uh, this very under the radar, nondescript well, YouTube channel that just secretly has the best talks on Australian architecture. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I used to own a bookshop called the architects bookshop. And that was something that I did because I was sick of not being able to buy books, architecture books in Sydney. There was no, there was no bookshop. So I was like, yeah, screw it. We're going to open a bookshop. Um, and when the pandemic hit and the bookshop closed and there was not really any, there was no one around, I was just bored. And I said to my husband, I'm going to do a talk. And he's like, how are you going to do it? I mean, I'm just going to do it over Teams. I'll just invite some people. And I put it up on Instagram and I always thought we'd get like 20 or 30 people who'd be like, you know, looking at Instagram and the bookshop's Instagram wanting to come. And 
I got so many responses it was out of control. <laughs> so teams couldn't teams couldn't handle it. So I had to postpone the first one because I couldn't didn't have the I didn't have any knowledge <laughs> yeah. about how to do it other than just ha- having a conversation. Yeah. yeah. So then I spent a week which almost gave me a mental a meltdown trying to find some way of putting it onto something. And so that was through YouTube and using OBS and oh, things. Oh, man, just you're talking like, my language. You know, I love it. <laughs> I had no idea to use it. I just hacked the system and thought, oh, it works. Let's do yeah. that next time. Yeah. Um, yeah, so then uh, the, the talks were really started just by friends because I just rang a friend and said, would you do the talk? I think Angelo was the first one. Yeah. I pretty much actually rang Angelo and said, you're doing a talk next week. And he was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then it kind of rolled from that and I just set, I'd set them up so that I had a few, a, you know, one a week for the 15 weeks or something. Yeah. And they got bigger and bigger and people were more interested. And then, and generally, and you're 100% right, like uh, anyone who's on the, who's on there responded within about five minutes and said, absolutely. Yeah. There was other people who I had asked who it was just impossible to get. And I was like, I was just like, oh, well, I'm just not going to, I I haven't got time actually to chase them up and organize it. This is the date you can do it or not. And if you can't, great, no problems. If you don't don't want to, no problems, we'll just roll on. Um, And yeah, so it was like, it was super generous of them to give their time. And then, you know, people like, um, Stuart and Aaron from Vokes and Peters suggested a few internationals and then those internationals f- suggested a few others and then yeah. through the bookshop there was one or two people whose books we'd had and I was like, I really want to speak to them. <laughs> so I just emailed them and they said, yeah, sure. <laughs> My goodness, it's so good and such a such a crazy lineup of uh, of architects. If you ever want to be a, a side hustle as my booking agent, Adam, for, for my podcast, I feel you've just, <laughs> you've just stacked up 30 of my absolute like dream guests there. So it's pretty amazing. Um, but, uh, you know, you touched on a couple of things earlier in terms of like, you're very interested to when you like the mysteries around why certain clients and certain architects get paired up. And you also mm. mentioned how projects come along. So you're almost like taking an out-of-body experience. You're stepping outside of your role as the architect and looking at it from the outside and going, that's mm. kind of odd how that stuff happens. I'm wondering in terms of in the process of selecting these guests and, and interviewing them and listening to them talk and things like that and curating this series, um, just... I, I suppose why why do you think that some architects kind of stand out that they that they come across to you and as you know that's an interesting person to listen to or an mm. interesting person mm. to hear from? Um, mm. What gets you onto onto a podcast or gets you onto this video series? Is it is it about is it about the 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 stuff the work or is it something else? I'm I'm probably coming from my own kind of curiosity mm. hosting a podcast and picking guests, but. Um, mm. I'd be interested in your observations, having sort of been through this process quite intensely. I mean, it's, there's a serious mm. amount of thinking behind picking 25, 30 architects to come mm. on a, to come on to be interviewed. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's a, it's it's a number of things. Like one, I've, I want to be interested in their work, and they're doing things that I aspire to be doing. Like I yeah. look at their work and think, oh my gosh, that is amazing and beautiful. And how did they ever do that? I think that's just that's a really essential part of when I was choosing them, I was like, my gosh, they just do amazing things. And then the second, the other bit is they're just genuinely good, interesting people who you just, uh, it's really easy to have a conversation with. And if you were like, I know that if I was in Brisbane and I was wanting to have dinner and I rang Stuart, he'd be like, come over and have dinner kind of thing, you know, like that kind of yes people. Um, So I really like that generosity of spirit that pretty much everybody on the, 
well, I would say everybody on the podcast had. There's that generosity of spirit of of sharing their knowledge. Um, I, I've always found the most accomplished architects, the people who I, I admire the most, are the, always the most generous of, yeah. their, of their knowledge. They will exactly. always, yeah. I mean, we did some work with uh, David Chipperfield's office and they are just so generous in terms of how they engaged with us and the information they shared with us and the encouragement that they gave us. It was just a very uh, life-affirming thing, you know. And on conversely, when I've sat on design review panels and I'm trying to help, you know, trying to help generally, trying to help with this yeah. sticky situation between a council and a client and an architect, um, you know, the people who are the most defensive about their position are generally the people who are delivering the worst work. You know, it's, oh my gosh, <laughs> you need to be just open up a bit because your yeah. your work will get better from it. You know, by yeah. just opening up, your work will get better. So it's yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember once um, a, a mate who was doing a lot of school projects um, who just started doing it, but suddenly they had they were getting so many of these tenders and they were mm. being successful. And they had gone to the, I think the, the council or the panel and said like, why why you keep on kind of going with us? And they're like, we mm. just actually find you really enjoyable to work with and you're kind of normal yeah. people. <laughs> yeah, and we get totally. a lot of people coming in here that are kind of a-holes and it's a little bit, yep. you know, tough to deal yep. with. Yeah, um, totally. but, but that's interesting. So, so that, that generosity factor, I think is definitely tied into, um, the accomplishment. I'm interested in how your experience also of how architects tend to describe themselves. Like when the talk's <laughs> over and you're having this conversation with them, mm-hmm. um, I noticed a couple of good examples where, you know, they try to always kind of put it down to, oh, it's just good design or whatever. It's always, it's quite simple how we do what we do or how we solve these issues. And then I noticed a couple of opportunities where you sort of said, well, yeah, it is that. You're obviously a good designer, but there's also this other element, this special skill set you have, or there's got to be something that you do that allows you to do this kind mm. of thing. Um mm. I find that sometimes breaking through that kind of modesty um, wall with architects can be a little bit tough mm. sometimes. Um, mm. do, do you did you did you pick up on anything like that in terms of having having these conversations in a in a in a more public setting? Because I can imagine if you're catching up for a, a dinner or a beer or whatever, it's going to be yeah. a very kind of much more frank conversation. But when you're doing it in in public in front of people, um, yes. Did, did you notice anything anything that sort of stood out to you in terms of you know? architects and the way they present themselves? Yeah, look, I think um, it's kind of interesting doing a po- doing the doing the YouTube videos because most of the people forgot there were people watching a lot of the times. Oh, uh, yeah, because <laughs> so, they were just basically on Zoom to correct, you and correct, they're not, they're not seeing 550 people live. And, correct, yeah. yeah, correct. So there was a kind of, there was a familiar, a casualness and a familiarity about it, which was quite good. Yeah. Um, but I also think that, you know, without doubt, the people who are the more most interesting to pe- people to speak to are people who reveal something about themselves. So, in a way, the people that I had chosen, uh, cho- I had kind of, you know, chosen them because actually they do reveal themselves. They are they're quite. Um, they let themselves be exposed. They let themselves be vulnerable, uh, which is, I think, a really important trait. Uh, some architects don't let themselves be vulnerable and don't reveal anything of themselves. And I think, and, and for me that they're probably the less interesting ones because mm. ultimately, you know, a beautiful building is a beautiful building, but if there's no story behind it, you can value it for its aesthetic or its sense of place or its sense of feeling or, 
you know, whatever. But I, but I personally get more value out of the discussion around, you know, how Angelo designed the mosque and why a, a Greek Catholic man is designing a mosque, you know, a Middle Eastern mosque in the middle of Western Sydney. You're like, how did that happen? Like, how did he come about to have that relationship? And, and you know, he's quite, he's quite, um, he's quite open to having that conversation, which I think is really, you know, amazing. Uh, I'm just trying to think back to some of the other ones that, you know, where people were quite revealing and quite vulnerable in the situation and talked about their insecurities of doing projects you know that they weren't really sure what they were doing and they were trying something out and it worked you know yeah. <laughs> um and obviously they're showing us the bits that work that no, no one's going to show you the, the bottom drawer projects but yeah. uh, you know it's 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 kind of understanding that kind of the capacity of the people have to be really quite real i think which is yeah. you know so this is Enjoyable why I think you need to continue this project <laughs> because yeah. we don't because nothing else like that really exists. I'm out here talking to architects about marketing and business and stuff like that. Mm. Um, every every now and then a podcast pops up by you know the institute or a or a product company or whatever, and it and it runs for ten episodes and they're f- they're eight minutes each. They're these little yes. they're barely even doing anything before they're over and done with. Um, yeah. And then you've got this amazing series of videos, uh, these long, lengthy interviews where you can have this very sort of it's a comfortable sort of private, cozy one-on-one conversation and then you're able to sort of push a little bit further and you're also a peer. Um, mm. What can I do to talk you into launching <laughs> this? Is Because I think it would not only be at the top of the podcast charts but yeah. there's just nothing that would even be coming yeah. close to it. Not that I oh, want to bump myself love... down. <laughs> yeah, I would love to keep doing them. It's probably just, uh, you know, a really practical level. I was just really, I'm a, t- I'm a technical naff. Like, you know, for me to even work out how to do that was just remarkable, right? Yeah. So it's really about finding, you know, some... Uh, yeah, for, to do it, I need to find some support to be able to do it. Someone who knows what they're doing, like yeah. someone who actually knows you, uh, OBS to kind of make it happen. Because <laughs> I was like, I'll push that button and see what happens. You know? um, yeah. But yeah, I would like to do it. I've been thinking about it more. It's just, a, you know, what it's like, Dave. Yeah, You've yeah. got to carve out a bit of time. You've you got to kind of exactly. prioritize it. It takes over your, your, your whole, you have to set your whole week around doing something Correct. like a big interview Correct. with somebody. Um, yeah. But um, so separate discussion for the future. If you ever decide mm. to relaunch, we'll, we'll, we'll get it happening. Um, awesome, David. So with, but I am sort of also interested in the, the generosity factor of also, and also the counterintuitive factor of going, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to put all this effort into highlighting what other architects are doing. Um, mm. Extremely, uh, yeah, yeah, extremely generous move in principle. Uh, another thing that I think um, some people are a little bit frightened off doing that 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 it's well, I need I, whatever content I make or whatever I spend time on, it should be focused sort of on us and what we're doing. Mm. It's mm. not. It's it's not like it's becoming less common of an attitude, but yeah, but maybe just a, in, it'd be interested in your thoughts on you know not being afraid to go. Hey, these are other architects that you know potentially our clients would be considering them for a project, maybe averse us. What are we doing, yeah, making yeah. them look awesome? Um, yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, no, it's. Um, I always find, even even the, in the built work we're doing now, I'm much more interested in doing projects where we have multiple architects involved, and we yeah, have interesting. You know, uh, we, we've just finished one in Newcastle where there was the three of us, uh, which we were kind of 
uh, driving. I finished one in Sydney where we were one of five and we were just a, a, pa a passenger, equal passenger with the others. And we're doing one in Canberra where we're one of 11 and we're kind of driving that. And But I, it's just so much more interesting. It's so yeah. much more interesting to have a conversation with people and other practices and see their diversity of thinking and have that diversity of thinking being brought to the table. I mean, I always say to clients, when we do a house, we don't do many houses, but when we do houses, I'm like, I will do some sketch designs for you for the house. And if during the process of doing the sketch design, you don't like it, you don't, you don't like where we're heading with it, please tell me and I will find you another architect who does what you want to be doing because a house is like five years of your life at a really intimate relationship yeah. you'll have with the client. Nobody wants to do that with somebody who they don't enjoy doing it with or on both sides of the fence. So, you know, there's, you know, I say to clients who we lose jobs to or lose jobs with or don't win competitions or whatever, it's you don't win them for the right reasons. Like you, if, if what you presented was your best ability and what, and the client didn't want it or they didn't choose you for it, well, you've lost it for the right reasons because you mm -hmm. don't want to then, you don't want to win it and be kind of, conflicting with somebody for the next six years of your life. Um, so I think you, sh you kind of, in my mind, you see the losses as opportunities rather than constraints. We learned something, we investigated something, we lost it, but that's okay because we'll win the next one because we'll have sharpened our thinking. Uh, and then in terms of having discussions with other architects or engaging them, that's for me one of the most interesting things. There's so many remarkable architects in this country just absolutely blow you away beautiful work I'm always I think that the lovely thing is um, I have a high level of jealousy of the work that they do and I love that because it's just this kind of you know, there's always something beautiful to look at or experience and you get to experience it for its joy you don't you know obviously you don't see all the heartache that goes into it but you get the joy and the beauty in it and to learn from them about what they did and how they created that joy and beauty I think is really super important and hopefully then you can learn something and inject it into your own work and you know um, have a more enjoyable period of time as well. That's interesting and such a great point. Um, I guess one one thing that comes up there is in terms of developing that that mindset of kind of patience and going, you know, if it's not the right project, it's not the right project, that's cool. I'm almost mm. not only accepting that, it sounds like you go, you know what, that's probably a good thing. How do you get to that place, man? Mm. <laughs> like, how do you not? Because I think everyone, it's not so much, I mean, there's practical reasons that you can be in a situation that enables you to feel that way about it. Maybe it's, yeah. oh, the, you know, we've always got more work than we need or we keep things, we yeah. keep it a level where we're not always, you know, we're not getting into a scarcity state where we're yes. cool, we're comfortable, everything's good, everyone's yes. happy. And then that makes it, those conditions make it a lot easier to have that more relaxed mindset. But, you know, yeah. how, how does it, were you always like that I mean, or, yeah? Oh, look, there's still projects which I'm angry about losing. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, okay, cool. So <laughs> or not, I'm disappointed about, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I can I can name three off the top of my head where I'm like, we should have won that or we should, we should have had that project, yeah. Um, but ultimately the reason that we didn't have it was for political reasons or cultural reasons or something. And it kind of breaks my heart because I think, oh, my God, we would have delivered a much better building or a really great project. Um, I have once rung a client. We lost a project to a in a little competition, and this was years ago. And I rang them afterwards and I said, look, I really respect your opinion, but I really think you've missed a really amazing opportunity here. I think what we're doing is could be fantastic for you. And the client was, I said, I just want to put it out there, right? I just <laughs> got to put it out there and have that kind of success with it. And the client was like, look, I respect you ringing me. 
Um, it's not going to change my decision, but if anything else changes on the project, you'll be the first person I call. And sure enough, six months later, they called me up and said, mm, you're right, we chose the wrong one. We actually want to come and talk to you about it again. And it was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. You know, like we got to do the project. It was really great. Um, you know, it's not always possible. It's not always relevant. It's not always, you know, you can't, often you don't have the relationship to be able to do that. Uh, but, yeah, I think it's a lot of things that give you the, I think it's self-confidence in the end, yeah. Dave. I think all the other things can help, like having financial security and having more work and having the capacity to be your own boss and making decisions. But I think ultimately it comes down to having confidence in yourself. And I know that if I know if I really have to and we really need a project, I will find a project that will pay us a fee to be able to ensure that we can keep the office operating. Yeah. yeah. But there's I know I know I can make that happen. So it's kind of a I suppose I have a uh, it might be misfounded, but I have a level of confidence in my capacity to be able to, you yeah. know, make that happen. Yeah, um, which is, which is, you know, I suppose I'm, I think I'm lucky that I have that sense of self belief that you know yeah. I've been raised culturally to have that. Yeah, that's awesome, Adam. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'll, we'll let you go a little bit early. I know you've got a lot on your plate. Um, thank you, thank you so much, and sharing some amazing insights into into your practice and, and your way of looking at it. I really appreciate it. No worries, Dave. I really appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to <laughs> listening to all your other podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> That was my conversation with Adam Haddo from SJB. If you'd like to learn more about SJB, you can visit sjb.com.au or follow them on Instagram at aboutsjb. You can also follow Adam on Instagram at Adam Haddo. Before you go, make sure to subscribe to the podcast to hear all of the amazing guests I've got coming up on the show in the new year. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. 